Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. It is December 10th, 2021. My name is Joe Schmidt. You are listening to the Conspiracy to Commit Poetry podcast, episode 8, I believe. So, tonight, uh, well, I haven't done this in, I guess, about a month, so on average I'm putting these out about once a month. Uh, I usually, or I've previously recorded them in the daytime. Uh, I'm doing this on a Friday night after a long week, uh, basically to relax. I've got my tea, the room is dark, uh, I've got a candle going, uh, I usually sit next to the, uh, balcony window, it's too cold to have this sliding glass door, you know, open, so I've got it closed. Uh, I've got the uh, balcony light on, so I've got this sort of dim ambient light going. It's been a long week. Um, I teach English to children. Uh, that's how I, I'm, I'm paying rent and eating right now. Um, and uh, it is really fulfilling work, you know, working with children. You go home every day feeling like you're making the world a better place. On the other hand, uh, children are exhausting. Uh, so uh, I have a full-time gig during the week. And then I have a weekend. And once an evening, one, one weekday evening, I meet with some, some children at the university. And uh, I do that through the Department of Continuing Education. And... Uh, so that department has declared it uh, Mevlana week, uh, as in Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi, the 12th century uh, poet uh, of, well, uh, well, he's buried in, or, or he's entombed in a mausoleum in Konya in modern Turkey. Uh, he was born in Balkh in modern Afghanistan, uh, and I'm just checking his dates. He is actually 13th century, the 1200s, so forgive me for that. 13th century poet, uh, Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi, who lived uh, basically at the very end of the Islamic Golden Age, and maybe that's a great place for us to start tonight to talk about uh, the Islamic Golden Age um, for, let's say, the Islamic Golden Age for uh, Westerners and those outside of, uh, you know, common Islamic knowledge. Um, so, um, if you, if you don't understand uh, some basics about Islam or Islamic history, um, the Prophet Muhammad uh, was first visited by the angel Gabriel uh, in the uh, 7th century. Uh, over 20 years, he received these revelations uh, delivered to him from the angel Gabriel, uh, and they were essentially direct messages from God, and those um, revelations are what constitutes the Quran. And uh, some people believe that quite literally and factually, and uh, some people reject 
that for any number of reasons, uh, religious or uh, a-religious uh, reasons. Um, but that's that's the story. Um, the interesting thing about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is that um, unlike other prophets in the Abrahamic religions, there there is uh, you know some contemporary uh, you know he was he was later in history. The seventh century is pretty well recorded, and uh, you know the emergence of Islamic Arabia is something. Uh, not just uh, recorded by Islamic writers, you know, it's it's recorded by all of their neighbors. Um, subsequent to the death of the Prophet Muhammad, after his full uh, revelation of the Quran, uh, the people who inherited the state that he founded in Arabia expanded it into a great empire. Uh, and the religion spread uh, along with this conquest. Uh, some might say that it spread uh, ahead of the conquest. Uh, I don't want to get into all that. There's a lot of views on that. And frankly, I'm, I'm really ignorant on the subject. What I do know is that the Islamic world, by the time of Charlemagne, let's say the dawn of the 9th century, extends from Spain... Andalusia, Al-Andalus, Spain, uh, to across North Africa, uh, the Arab world, uh, the Near East, uh, Eastern, you know, Southern Anatolia here, where I'm, where I'm at here in Gaziantep, and beyond uh, across Persia uh, and into Central Asia. And uh, during the Abbasid, Caliphate. Uh, there's the Umayyad Caliphate. Uh, the the well. Let, let me do this in order. There are the the Rashidun Caliphate is the five rightly guided uh, caliphs that uh, follow. The the caliph is just a successor to Muhammad. Uh, they're not prophets. Uh, they are, but the original five are knew him well, and uh, uh, and then uh, after the assassination of the last rightly guided. Caliph Ali, and, I'm, and by the way, I'm giving you the Sunni uh, uh, narrative here, um, but you know, there's like a billion people that subscribe to this. Um, there's a civil war after the assassination of Ali. Uh, that civil war actually leads to the Sunni Shia split. I'm being very, very uh, reductive and and and, and uh, very general in this. Storytelling, but I do want to set the context for for the world Rumi enters into. Um, so there's the Umayyad uh, Caliphate that uh, you know has this united uh, Islamic uh, empire. They win the civil war. Um, that Caliphate is is very uh, Arab oriented, um, from what I've read about it. Uh, it is eventually overthrown by uh, the Abbasids who uh, move the capital from Damascus. You know, uh, Muhammad founds his state in Medina. 
uh, and it's basically centered on, on Medina until uh, the Umayyads who move the capital to Damascus and make this, you know, this grand capital there. Uh, the Abbasids found the city of Baghdad and uh, Baghdad uh, in the time of the Abbasids comes to um, rival uh, Constantinople in, in the East Roman Empire, uh, Byzantium, uh, in, in economic and cultural clout. Uh, it, it becomes a super city, a metropolis, and it's a center for learning. Uh, so the Islamic Golden Age really begins with the Abbasids, where the Islamic world uh, makes a great leap in uh, economic and uh, intellectual and technological uh, progress. Uh, algebra is invented. Uh, all of these uh, astronomical instruments uh, are created, uh, you know, for the practical purpose of, of finding Mecca so that you could pray, but, but also, you know, the, the Islamic world is a world of traitors. Um, camel caravans going from one end of uh, Eurasia uh, to the other, uh, and to Africa. Islam, uh, during the Golden Age, spreads to West Africa. There's there's another Islamic Golden Age uh, in West Africa after the proper Islamic Golden Age. Uh, and we'll talk about why that is, maybe. Um, so, yeah, so the 800s, 900s, 1011, the Crusades happened, but the Crusades are, you know, uh, not uh, catastrophic to the Islamic world. There's sort of the, the beginning of, of troubles, uh, you know, speaking from the Islamic perspective, but, but they're not the, the, the catastrophe. The catastrophe is the Mongols in the 1200s. But, but let's just talk about what happened during the Islamic Golden Age. There is an incredible amount of writing in Arabic, but also in uh, a revival of Persian culture and Farsi, um, the, uh, the, the Abbasids sort of blend the Arab and Persian worlds and create the aesthetic, certainly the, uh, the calligraphy and uh, the, the artistic aesthetic that we, we've come to uh, in modern times admire about classic, classical Islamic uh, civilization. So my terminology may be off. I don't claim to be a religious scholar. Um, and I'm uh, certainly not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very new and, and uh, largely ignorant about subjects uh, uh, of, of, of Islam, Islamic history, and I don't read Farsi, and I don't read Arabic, and, and all of that. Um, but I, I read everything I can in English about this stuff. Because we have a little bit of it in the West, because I am a Westerner, an American, uh, we have a little bit of a blind side uh, about that history. Um, so in any case, uh, the Abbasid world of, of Arab and Persian intellectuals and uh, the uh, collection of, uh, during the, the uh, Abbasid Caliphate in, uh, Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad, they collected uh, all of these books of ancient antiquity. Uh, at the time that uh, the, the Western world is losing 
and in some cases burning and destroying the works of classical antiquity in Greek and Latin, particularly Greek, the, uh, the Islamic world is collecting these and translating them into Arabic and, uh, and continuing that tradition. So uh, while, you know, what becomes France, uh, Roman Gaul and Italy and Spain, uh, well, Spain is Islamic. Spain is one of these places that's a sort of a contact point between Europe and Islamic world. Same with uh, Islamic Sicily. Um, but, you know, Western Europe uh, is largely uh, illiterate and ignorant and loses its books. And... Um, the Islamic world pres uh, preserves a lot of these books. Um, it's when it's not at war with Byzantium, Byzantium and the Arab world also come to a kind of, um, you know, a peace. The Abbasids are interested in trading with Byzantium, not conquering it necessarily. Um, this has a lot to do with Byzantium's uh, rebound militarily. Um, so, I'm all over the place here, but my point is, is that the classical world, uh, there's only a dark age in the West. You know, the the Greek-speaking world and the Arab-speaking world uh, continues classical, uh, you know, classical intellectual discourse continues is what I'm saying, and actually progresses and expands, and uh, and 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 this is particularly true in the Islamic world. Um, and not just in Arabic, also in Persian. Um, so in the eastern end of the of the Abbasid Caliphate is the, the Persian world, which by by you know we're several centuries into the Islamic era. Uh, Persia is you know very very much grounded in Islam at this point, and uh, you have many. Um, uh, Persian intellectuals who are Muslim and are contributing to um, the Islamic uh, uh, intellectual uh, work, you know, the, the body of Islamic intellectual work. So uh, the Turkic peoples enter into the Islamic world in the late 900s, in the 900s, thousands, 1100, and uh, they come at first because, you know, several generations, in the same way that in Western Europe, uh, the Romans conquer Western Europe, they build this wonderful empire, and, and uh, more of them get into reading books than into, uh, you know, becoming soldiers, you know, the, the, and, and so they start, uh, this is where the Germans enter into Western European history, the so-called barbarians. And the same similar process sort of happens in the Islamic world. The Turks come as, uh, you know, illiterate steppe nomads uh, who are uh, soldiers for hire, and they're hired out by uh, the wealthy and cultured uh, Arabs and Persians that they come into contact with in the Islamic world. Uh, and... You know, the Turkic peoples get around and, and they decide they want a piece of the action. So when they can't be employed or trade with uh, the Islamic world, they, they, they start conquering parts of it. Um, this is a 
you know, a gross overgeneralization of this process that happens over centuries and there's different groups. And uh, what is uh, notable is that there is a great Turkic empire at a certain point. Um, it doesn't really replace the Persians and the Arabs. It just, the military ruling class is Seljuk Turkic. Uh, the uh, intellectual classes, the classes of bureaucrats and... Uh, uh, and judges and jurists and theologians and all these people that sort of keep civilization going uh, is in the hands of the Persians and the Arabs, depending on where what end of the Islamic world you're in. Uh, this Seljuk Empire is essentially what uh, uh, causes uh, Greek Orthodox uh, Byzantium, the East Roman Empire, to ask the Pope in Rome for military assistance uh, and this sparks the uh, the Crusades. Uh, the Crusades sort of happen at the beginning of the end of the Islamic uh, Golden Age, and um, so it's it's kind of as the Crusades are dwindling, dwindling down, I suppose that, uh, uh, or really, a, yeah, no, it's kind of in the Crusading times when. Uh, Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi is uh, on the scene, as it were. He's born in Balkh, Afghanistan. And while the uh, crusaders from Europe, Christian crusaders from Europe, are um, conquering Jerusalem and Antioch and places like that, uh, you have uh, an invasion from the east of the Mongols. Uh, which is eventually going to be uh, much more catastrophic for Islamic civilization than the Crusaders are, because eventually the Crusaders are um, are fought off, you know, over you know a, a several generations. Uh, the Crusaders, at best, only conquer a strip of land along the Near East um, that they're not able to hang on to uh, in its entirety. Uh, for very long. Um, the Fourth Crusade famously uh, is a Christian-on-Christian -Christian, uh, crime, as it were. You know, the, the Western Crusaders decide, you know, hey, we don't have enough money to get to uh, Jerusalem, so we'll just sack Constantinople, a, a Christian city. But, you know, they're Orthodox Christians rather than Roman Catholics, so we'll, you know, we, we'll just call them heretics and take their stuff. Um and that weakens, uh, you know, the Byzantine world for the eventual uh, Ottoman conquest later on in history. Uh, 1071, famously, is the Battle of Manzikert uh, here in modern Turkey. And uh, Alp Arslan, a Seljuk general, uh, defeats the Byzantine uh, army. Uh, and uh, from that point on onwards, uh, Turks live in Anatolia, and they, they live here now. This country is called Turkey. Uh, it took a very long time uh, before all of Anatolia was totally Turkicized. Um, yeah, the 1200s. Uh, so that's, that's, okay, so 1071, Battle of Manzikert. Uh, was it 1095 or whatever? The Pope preaches uh, uh, a crusade. Uh, the crusades really happening in the 1100s, Saladin and all that. Saladin was a, uh, a Kurd, not an Arab, uh, although he led an Arab empire uh, out of Egypt. 
the Ayyubid Sultanate, uh, and and they 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 fought with the Crusaders, and the Turks fought with the Crusaders, the Islamic Turks, at this point. Um, and then the twelve hundreds, yeah, here comes uh, the Mongols coming out of East Asia and going into Central Asia, where Rumi was born. And Rumi's father was a, a, a jurist and a, um, and a theologian and a very well-respected person, and he had to leave uh, Balk in uh, what is now Afghanistan and, and head westward, running from this, uh, this uh, Mongol tide. Uh, and they end up in Kanya, uh, in in Turkey, what is now Turkey, that was the uh, Roman city of Iconium, uh, Turkicized into Konya. When uh, so Rumi Rumi uh, comes of age there, and he takes over essentially his father's role as a jurist and theologian. He founds the famous Mevlevi order of Sufi dervishes. Um, these are the famous whirling dervishes. When Rumi is uh, very young, excuse me, when he is uh, in middle age, um, he's a very well-respected figure uh, in the Seljuk, Turkic, Muslim world of Anatolia, uh, Shams, this guy, Shams of Tabrizi, Shams, Shams Tabrizi comes to him. I think that means Shams from Tabriz. Uh, Tabriz is in modern-day Iran. But Shams um, is like this dirty, wandering dervish. And uh, and Rumi, at the time, is this very uh, official guy, you know, well-respected well and a judge and all this. And uh, here comes this guy who sort of blows his mind about God, and they become very, very close friends, Um and uh, it's a it's a brief but very intense uh, friendship uh, of two people that are in love with God, and uh, and then Shams disappears. There's a lot of theories about that, uh, but this is sort of heartbreaking. Uh, and this the disappearance of Shams uh, is really the beginning of 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 uh, Rumi as a writer, uh, and he. He writes several masterpieces of Persian literature, and he writes in Farsi, in, in classical uh, Persian. Uh, he's also literate in Arabic, of course, and he's, he, uh, his, his works are full of all kinds of Islamic references. Um, his name is uh, worth noting. Uh, his name is Jalaluddin, is his name. Mevlana just means master. Uh, but he's such a well-respected master in his time and in historical memory that when you say Mevlana in the Islamic world today, they, you mean Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi. There are the other Mevlanas, but there, he is the Mevlana, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, Rumi is just a nickname. Uh, people in the West call him Rumi. He's called uh, of, of Rum, R-U-M. Uh, Konya was a capital of the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum, uh, which is a sort of a successor state to the Seljuk Empire. Uh, why rum? Do they drink rum? No. Rum is a Turkicized uh, 
pronunciation of Rome, because Anatolia was the heartland of the East Roman Empire of Byzantium. And when the Turks came to rule here in Anatolia, this was still a, a Greek and Armenian Christian majority society, the, and these folks thought themselves as Roman citizens. This was the Roman Empire. And so Jalaluddin Rumi is the Jalaluddin the Roman, because he lived in, in Rome. Uh, in, the, in the East, in Central Asia, Afghanistan, countries like that, uh, he's called sometimes Balki, as in Jalaluddin from Balkh, Afghanistan, where he was born. But the world knows him as Rumi, and, and uh, Coleman Barks, uh, an American who is still alive, a very old man, retired uh, University of Georgia professor. Uh, his uh, interpretations of translations in English of Rumi uh, have been bestsellers, and these are the selections I will be uh, using tonight. Uh, I'm trying to, you know, I went on a really long thing about Rumi there, but I, th I think it's important for people to uh, know who this guy is. He's not some, uh, Rumi was not, a new age figure. He was not, uh, uh, you know, what you might think he is. You know, I think it's important to have a sense of who he was historically. Uh, his book, The Mevlevi, uh, he's got another one called the the Shams Shams Tabrizi. Uh, he's got a number of masterworks. The Mithnawi is his most famous. And actually, uh, what I'm reading uh, to you this evening are all uh, interpretations, Coleman Barks' interpretations from the Mithnawi. Um, so, yeah, if you get out of this that he wrote Persian, they lived uh, in the 1200s. Um, well, I, I should probably tell you how the, the Islamic Golden Age ends, and it ends with the Mongols uh, destroying Baghdad, utterly. Baghdad is totally destroyed by the Mongols in, I think, the 1300s by a grandson, great-grandson of Genghis Khan, uh, Timur, Timur the Lame. Um, I don't know if I got all the history there. You, that's a whole other subject, the the uh, significance of the Mongol conquests. Uh, but the Mongols, you know, are, are a definite, like, watershed moment in, in Islamic history. The Arab world is never the same. After, uh, after the Mongols. So, uh, yeah, maybe that's an important context. So Rumi's this guy that's living in a time when, um, you know, there's war all over the place. It's not uh, a love fest, the world he's living in. Uh, it is a world of uh, war and plague and political... Um, Political disunity, chaos, political chaos uh, uh, within the Turkic Islamic world, within the Islamic world, and outside of it. It's—it's uh, uh, it's just endless warfare, and uh, you know, it's—it's it's a difficult world that he's living in. So here is this person who uh, is escaping the Mongol. Um, Invasion. He's in Anatolia, where he has you know Christians and Muslims at each other's throats around him. Um, uh, an interesting thing about Rumi is he he does not emphasize uh, Sunni orthodoxy. 
and, and, and he's a guy whose job is to judge uh, religious law, you know. Uh, but, you know, he makes uh, Christian references as well as uh, Islamic references in his, in his poetry. I think it's very important. Um, Rumi was uh, so beloved in Konya that when he died, uh, thousands of Christians as well as Muslims uh, came to his, uh, his funeral. Uh, so I've spent a half hour rambling on. Uh, maybe I should just read you something. Uh, I, I picked out three of these Coleman Barks poems, and, and they're all sort of, uh, uh, well, they give you a sense of Rumi's spiritual uh, perspective, maybe. This one, first one is called A Subtle Theological Point. There was a popular preacher, very subtle in his exegesis. A huge crowd always gathered when he spoke. Jahi wanted to hear, so he put on a long mantle, a woman's shadar, and went into the mosque on the less crowded women's side, undetected. Someone handed a note discreetly to the preacher, asking whether hair in the private regions causes difficulty in ritual prayers. The preacher replied, Openly, if your hair is long in the pubic region, then you are not properly prepared for prayer. You may wish to use a depilatory or a razor to remove those long hairs. The questioner continued, but to what length should they be cut to make my praying right? The preacher, as long as the length does not exceed the width of a grain of barley, your hair cutting will be religiously perfect. O oh, asker of many questions, at once Jahi whispered to the woman beside him, Sister, see if the hair in my pubic region is as it should be, pleasing to God. Feel your hand, whether it's right. The woman put her hand between his legs and touched his penis. She screamed out. The preacher said, My discourse must have touched her, her, touched her heart. It's not so much, replied Jahi. Her heart's that's it's not so much, replied Jehi, her heart that's impressed as her hand, but oh, if a wise man like you could so touch a heart. Reader, when divine love reached and brushed only just so lightly, Pharaoh's magicians, they no longer knew a hand from a staff. If you take away a walking stick from an old man, he will be more grieved than those Egyptian shamans were when they had their hands and feet amputated. Their cry was, no harm. This is no harm to us. We are no longer in these bodies. We live within God. Blessed is anyone who knows who he or she really is and builds a place to live there. A child loves walnuts and raisins more than anything. A mature spirit sees those delights for what they are. To your deepest being, the body is like a raisin and walnut snack. Your soul has no doubts about what's more real. Every man has testicles and hair, as every male goat has a beard and balls. One goat, though, leads the group to the butcher, 
He combs his beard and says, I'm in charge here. Yes, in charge of death and worrying. Forget your beard and your self-importance. Be an invisible guide like the scent of roses that shows where the inner garden is. And uh, there's a note at the bottom of this, Mothnawi, Roman numeral 5, 3325-3350, which I guess is the 25 lines that it's taken from in the Mothnawi, part five of the Mothnawi. Okay, so a lot happened in that poem, and I'm not going to explain it to you uh, other than there's a popular preacher, and they get into all of this uh, debate on, you know, uh, it is customary for Muslims to shave their pubes and armpit hair, and this is considered part of cleanliness for prayer, and uh, some people make a, a fetish out of it. Uh, uh, the forms of worship uh, become more important than the worship, and this is what uh, this is what Rumi is uh, meditating on in that poem. Uh, and this character, Juhi, dresses up as a woman because he wants to hear the preacher. So he goes to the woman's side, but, you know, he's so kind of turned on to be around all the women. And, uh, you know, while the, while the, uh, all the preaching's going on, he tricks this woman into reaching down his pants and she discovers that he's, in fact, uh, a male, physical male. He has a male member and she screams out and the, Preacher, the boring preacher, is sort of like, oh, look, my preachings impressed this woman. And Juhi mocks him. And and then, and then he just drops it. Uh, uh, Rumi just drops the that story. It doesn't go on any further with it. And, and goes into this idea about, you know, uh, divine love and the absurdity of... Uh, the absurdity of forms. The absurdity of forms of worship rather than... Uh, the sincerity of worship. I explained more than I wanted to there, but that was a subtle theological point. I will read another one. I've got three of them. And this is called The Private Banquet. The Private Banquet. Muhammad in the presence of Gabriel. Friend, let me see you as you really are. Let me look as an interested observer looks at his interest. You could not endure it. The sense of sight is too weak to take in this reality. But show yourself anyway, that I can understand what may not be known with the senses. The body senses are wavering and blurry, but there is a clear fire inside, a flame like Abraham that is Alpha and Omega. Man seems to be derived, evolved from this planet, but essentially man is the origin of the world. Remember this. A tiny gnat's outward form flies around and around in pain and wanting, while the gnat's inward nature includes the entire galactic whirling of the universe. Muhammad persisted in his request, and Gabriel revealed a single feather that reached from the east to the west, 
a glimpse, a glimpse that would have instantly crumbled to powder, a mountain range. Muhammad stared, senseless. Gabriel came and held him in his arms. Awe serves for strangers. This close-hugging love is for friends. Kings have formidable guards around them with swords drawn, a public show of power that keeps order and reduces arrogance and mischief and other disasters. But when the king comes to the private banquet with his friends, there's harp music and the flute, no kettle drums, and no keeping accounts, no judging behavior, no helmets, no armor, just silk and music and beautiful women bringing cups. You know how it is, but who can say it? Conclude this part, my friend, and lead us the way we should go. That was the private banquet. I'll just read you my last one. The Ocean Duck. The Ocean Duck by Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi. You're a wild ocean duck that has been raised with chickens. Your true mother lived on the ocean, but your nurse was a domestic land bird. Your deepest soul instincts are toward the ocean. Whatever land moves you have, you learn from your nurse, the hen. It's time now to join the ducks. Your nurse will warn you about salt water, but don't listen. The ocean's your home, not that stinking hen house. You are a king, a son of Adam. You can tread water as well as the ground. Angels don't walk the earth and animals don't swim in the spiritual ocean. You're a man or a woman. You do both. You stumble along and you soar in great circles through the sky. We are water birds, my son. The ocean knows our language and hears us and replies, The sea is our Solomon. Walk into that and let the David water make us lovely chain mail with its ripples. The ocean is always around us, but sometimes through vanity and forgetfulness we get seasick. As thunder sometimes gives a thirsty man a headache when he forgets it's bringing rain, he keeps hoping for something from the dry creek bed. Don't look to secondary causes. Once an ascetic lived far out in the desert, and pilgrims would come to marvel at him. Enraptured, he stood on sand, hot enough to make water boil. Yet in the desert wind, he was cool and moist, as though in a freshly watered garden. His bare feet seemed wrapped in silk, and his body in a breeze. The pilgrims waited. Finally, he came back from his absorbed state to be one of them, very bright and alive. Water was trickling from his face and garments, as though from ablutions. Where did it come from, they asked. He pointed upward. 
But does it come whenever you want it to? With no well and no rope? Tell us more about this. The aesthetic prayed, answer these pilgrims' questions, you who brought space into view from non-spatiality. Let these pilgrims see where their sustaining comes from. In the middle of that, a cloud appeared, a big elephant of a cloud that began to spray down trunkfuls of rainwater, flooding the ditches and the hollows. The pilgrims opened their water skins and let them be filled. One group immediately cut the cords of doubt and were freed. Another group let their faith begin to grow slowly. And a third segment of the pilgrims were sour and skeptical before they came, sour and skeptical afterwards. And that's the end of the story. That's from part two of the Mathnawi, 3766 to 3810. These are line numbers. The ocean duck, long poem. By Rumi. Um, and I'm just going to leave that as my contribution to uh, Rumi week. The uh, 17th of December is the day that Rumi died, and uh, to this day, in Konya, the uh, Mevlevi will hold a ceremony with the whirling dervishes. Um, to commemorate uh, what they call the uh, wedding of Mevlana, Mevlana's wedding day, which is the day that he died when he was wed to the friend, to God. So um, that last poem I, I chose because it had a lot of rain in it. Um, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know over the summer it was very... It was hot and it was uh, very dry. And the beauty is that uh, late autumn has come and with it some rainy days. And uh, the air is moister, moister, and the clouds, or the air is moist. It has moisture in it, you know, rather than just being bone dry air. And the, you know, there's big poofy clouds even after the rainstorms. And uh, um, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about rain imagery and I have a colleague a uh, gentleman from Ghana he told me about a dream he had um, where the you know basically the earth split in two and the continents were sinking and uh, he's uh, some, some kind of evangelical Christian and him and I always get to talking about religion and I think about Mevlana in Anatolia and the 13th century, probably talking to uh, Greek or Armenian Christians, you know, maybe Arab Christians. Um, who knows what traders came through Konya and uh, Anatolia in, uh, in those days. But here we are, uh, an American and a Ghanaian, uh, talking about religion, uh, you know, on the spectrum of Islam and Christianity, Protestant Christianity. Um, in any case, uh, Noah was referenced several times, and um, Noah came up uh, talking to my father. My father-in-law is uh, loves to talk about uh, Islamic prophets, and Noah is counted among the Islamic prophets. 
just as he is a, a prophet for uh, Jewish people and Christian people. And uh, and then there's all this rain and of Lana's poem. There is a flood, and, and I don't fear that there will be a flood, but uh, at least here, might be a flood in southern Illinois. If you're if you're in the uh, Ohio Valley listening to this, I have friends there. Uh, you know, you you know what floods are like sometimes. If you live along the Mississippi or the Ohio River in America, I've seen some floods in Louisville. Um, so, you know, the the, the I guess the cataclysm. Uh, is a theme uh, in our contemporary thought in uh, this plague time of COVID-19, uh, you know, persisting into the year 2022 that's about to begin. Um, and wars, you know, the worst war of this century happened uh, a few miles down the road in Syria. And the refugees of that war live in my neighborhood and all over the world. And uh, 100,000 troops are amassed in Ukraine. And, um, you know, the Americans and the Chinese are rattling sabers over Taiwan. And, uh, uh, and then there's uh, climate uh, change and climate catastrophe. Uh so, you know, Noah is a, I don't know, maybe an appropriate prophet, and uh, I should probably read more about him. And in the meantime, I'm, I'm still writing poems. And uh, some of you out there that, that read what I post as text uh, on this uh, platform, um, you know, know that I write poems. Uh, the candle's burning. I'm relaxed. I'm tired. Um, I have uh, I have faith in the future, not in a material sense, but in a a spiritual sense that there is a cosmic consciousness. There is God. There is Allah, and Allah. Um, this is His creation. All this world and all worlds and, and all of the possible worlds uh, are his creation. I use the uh, sexist uh, pronoun his. Uh, Allah does not have a gender, you know. God cannot be circumscribed. We, we throw language and metaphor at it, but it's God is there, you know. And um, in a certain sense, if uh, human beings can't get it together on this earth and we destroy ourselves in a material sense, it's, it's, it's almost like spilt milk from a certain perspective, you know? Um, I don't know. Maybe that's the wrong thing to say. I don't mean to be nihilistic about it. I just know that everything's going to be okay. And uh, even if we are, you know, creeping closer to doomsday or whatever, um, 
this world, this creation of the ultimate being is so beautiful. Um, and it is a blessing to be a creation within this creation, reflecting the perfection of the creator. And that's why uh, I continue to create and not just consume like an animal, you know, but to create, to draw, to sing, to write poems, to dance, to dream, and to realize those dreams. So I bid thee good health. Um, God bless you. And if you are so inspired, please do write a poem.